Welcome to the journey of an aesthete, a comprehensive examination of all things aesthetic, the arts, the humanities, and what it means to be human. Hello, Mesh. Blake Gottnick, welcome to our show, A Journey of an Aesthete podcast. A pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you here. You know, I should say a few introductory remarks, if you don't mind. I, I feel um, we've had so many different kinds of people on our show, critics and, and um, painters and sculptors and, and musicians. And um, you're on mainly, uh, well, you're a great art critic, but also you've written what appears to be the definitive book on Warhol. Warhol. Uh, that that was the goal. That was the goal. I, I, I won't declare it. That's too too much of a claim for me to make. But I was trying to be comprehensive, if nothing else. It's very comprehensive. And I, I read the whole thing. I even did a video um, piece on it a couple of weeks ago. And I'm, I love the book. And there's so much to talk about, not only just Warhol, but also, of course, your background as an art critic, how you came to do that kind of writing and that kind of work uh, coming out of Philadelphia, I, I, it seems, in Pennsylvania. Your, of course, your illustrious family and siblings, if you want to discuss that, <laughs> and, and uh, anything else that comes into your mind. But I was very um, – I want to start off uh, out of order because you've written a piece on one of my favorite books, and that's Susan Maisel's Carnival Strippers. This came up in my I, feed, Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That is a fabulous thing. And you wrote that when you wrote that just today, right? Yes, it's one of your one of your um, one of your posts, right? Uh, it was for the New York Times, actually. I wrote a little piece for the New York Times, and I reposted it on my own website. Oh, that's um, uh, but yeah, just a little piece about the the color photographs that were discovered from that series. I mean, the the black and whites were one of the most famous series of photographs in really in photo book history. Absolutely. Um, but she, she was digging in her in her storage and found out, as she'd completely forgotten, that she'd also shot color slides at the same time wow. as she was shooting the, the famous black and white. So there's only a few of them. You know, I don't know, a couple of dozen maybe, probably one roll or a few rolls. Yeah. Um, but they really do give a whole new sense of that shoot. It's uh, really beautiful. Yeah, they are beautiful. Well, that's news to me, and I'm sure it's news to you and, you, and you wrote about it. That's one of my favorite books by her. Um, I, I think she's probably more well-known for her Nicaraguan and more of her um, work, right, South America. But um, that, but that Carnival Strippers is, is an incredible book. Um, Absolutely. For those, for those that don't know, Susan, Susan May, what would you, what would you say about that book or, or that, uh, the significance of it in terms of history of, of rural life in America or, or that kind of thing or photography or? Well, I don't know a whole lot about rural life in America. I'm a real city slicker, but I think it's really important for the history of photography because there's a sense of of contact between uh, Susan and her subjects in that book that had rarely really been allowed before in photojournalism, for want of a better word. Um, there's a real sense of intimacy, of collaboration in there. And an acknowledgement of that. I mean, obviously, every time someone takes a photograph of someone else, there's some kind of collaboration going on, Absolutely. unless they're, you know, unless they're taking it secretly. Mm -hmm. um, but in this case, there was really a sense of contact between the two, between the photographer and the the women who are who are stripping in these very rural carnivals. And in my piece, my recent piece for the Times, I argued that. Um, that was because they were actually closer together sociologically than what imagined. That is, being 
a young, very young woman trying to break into photography or photojournalism mm -hmm. left you stranded uh, professionally in some of the same ways that, that being a stripper did. Um, so I think that that may be one of the points of contact. I think we've forgotten just how viciously male chauvinist uh, the whole world was and America was in the 1970s, that for Susan to do what she did uh, required, in a sense, the same guts as as it took for the strippers to, to strip. To strip. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I've been a fan of that book. So, you know, it was a, I have a first edition of, of that, and, and it's one of the few books that I saved and carried when I moved. Um, yeah. And uh, I've always wanted her to be a guest on the show, so that's in the back of the back of the, my mind to have her have her potentially be a guest. Um, not to get too far away from the subject of you, but you, you know her other work, of course, in Central America, right? And um, she, she was very involved, I think. I think in Nicaragua, right? Nicaragua. No, that's right. That's right. I mean, she's really famous. Funnily enough, she's more famous for that work, which has some of the same qualities as the, the that first book of stripper photographs. There's also an unusual intimacy for what strike one as, as photojournalistic works. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely one of the one of the great photographers. And if I if I can direct our conversation back to my favorite topic, which is Warhol. Yep. There's a certain there's you could argue that there's a that there are kind of roots in Warhol to what she did. Oh, absolutely. Uh, roots is probably the wrong word well, in a way I totally because agree. You know. I totally see it. I totally see. It. I mean, I see the factory in the in that. I see. But I mean, again, we have a lot to talk about. I mean, Warhol is deeply underrated and misunderstood as an artist. I mean, I've, I've discussed this another. Me and Jay Wig talk about talk about this a lot. You know, Jay Wig. But um, I, I feel um, you know one of. The, the way I, dis I discovered Warhol was through his film work. Uh, ah, the 60s. excellent. Before, really, I knew about that stuff more intimately than, than the, uh, the, the paintings or the, uh, the illustra illustrations. And it's interesting because um, I got to screen them properly because I, my friend Saul Levine has all the original prints of Couch and Kiss and Chelsea Girls, and he would show Chelsea Girls and projected in the proper manner, you know, with the two projectors and all the, all the instructions and everything. And uh, those films, seeing those really blew my mind. I mean, the, to me, this was really great cinema. And it was as yeah. good as any, any avant-garde cinema I'd seen. And in some cases, I'm sure you'll agree, way ahead of its time, I think, in what he's doing with, with, with the, the figures in the film and time and duration. And is that, what would you say? Yeah. I mean, oh, oh I, think, I think they're definitely some of his very, very greatest works. I mean, you know, among film connoisseurs especially, but even among art connoisseurs, you know, they're extremely well known. Um, but the general public, it's true, is fixated on Campbell Soups and Brillo boxes yeah. and really doesn't understand. I mean, it, it, until quite recently, it was awfully hard to get to see the films. I mean, now the Warhol Museum quite recently yeah. has been streaming them um, for a relatively reasonable fee. They stream a couple at a time and they'll be changing them, I think, every few months, the ones that are available. But there, I mean, you know, there's a million feet of film that they're working through to figure out exactly what what the Warhol filmography is like. Um but, you know, some of those movies, you know, his his great um, film stills, you know, these are four-minute pr um, portraits of people, yeah. you know, with an unmoving camera, yeah. are, I think, some of the greatest portraits of all time, easily up there with Rembrandt or any other great oh, portraits yeah. you could name. Yeah, I'm so yeah, really. glad you make that comparison. I'm, I'm so glad that you're on our show to express that again, because there still is, unfortunately, you know, some kind of lazy anti-Warhol sentiment around and, and, and people that don't don't understand yeah, I mean, I'm I'm one of the people who've actually sat through all of Empire 
beginning to end watching it on film, proper film, uh, once. Yes. And I've seen large chunks of it more than once. Um, and I actually think it's absolutely worth the effort. Oh, yeah. If you take it seriously, you really have to make the effort. You can't just sit there, you know, like a potato. You got to work at it. But it's, I think it's just great. Yeah, he, I'm sure he, I think he was an influence on Pedro Costa. Certainly, if you know, in Vondi's room, and, and, and certainly he was influenced from literally many filmmakers, many art filmmakers. And doing and doing some of those same things way early before, I think I think again ahead of his time in a way. Sometimes. Well, other people were other people were toying with some of the same ideas. I mean, we're all often in the mix. It's one of the important things that I try to stress in my book is that he wasn't an outsider. He was very much engaged in the particular aesthetic conversations, artistic conversations happening at any given time. Um, so, you know, he was he was never alone. He always makes sense art historically in his moment. And that's very important to me to recognize that there's, you know, he's part of the conversation. He's not he's not a freak. No, I mean, uh, he well, your book is, uh, again, you, you, you decided to write, for lack of a better word, a more traditional type of biography in its comprehensiveness and its in its um, accuracy and detail and, con- and very conscientious. And I really appreciate that, again, because there's a lot of. Not a lot, but there is some stuff out there that's not not possessed of that integrity, and your book has that. And I'm and I'm wondering about your chronology as a, as a, as a thinker and a writer, how you got into art writing, and t- take me back to your earlier days or Pennsylvania or whatever to to uh, write a book of this of this uh, achievement. Tom, t- t- what went into that? Tom, talk about your story with, with that. Uh, well, Pennsylvania doesn't have a huge role in it because we moved from Philadelphia to Montreal when I was five. Uh-huh. My parents were both professors at McGill, moved to become professors at okay. McGill University. Um, uh, and they were very, very small scale collectors, but of works by pop artists, um, Lichtenstein, Oldenburg. They, in fact, didn't like Warhol. So the Warhol we had, which I used to look at, as I've said many times, for many minutes every day, was in the bathroom. So I got to know that from the seated position, and it was just a poster of a Marilyn. Um, But I remember really studying it very closely. My parents also were part-time art critics, so I was surrounded by art and talk about art from a, from a very, very young age. Um, they, and then they went on from pop to collect very early computer-generated art and, and some interesting material like that. Um, but then I was, well, very briefly a commercial photographer because I wanted to get away from the family business of academia. Yeah. And I failed, I failed dismally to get away from it. Within a few years, I was back in university. And I was obsessed, yeah, I went to McGill and um, was obsessed with the Middle Ages. And in fact, did my first degree was in medieval studies, kind of ad hoc degree in medieval studies. So I did ton of, tons of Anglo-Saxon and Latin. Wow. And then uh, went to, started a PhD in England about um, 10th century Italian land contracts in, in northern Italy, in Lombardy. And worked away at it, beavered away at it. And actually really quite loved the work, but the sources were so goddamn dry. They were all in Latin. And in fact, I was just working on land contracts. So not even narrative sources, you know, really recalcitrant documents. And that just eventually killed me. And I switched into art history. I mean, that's where it really all started. Then I was an art historian, you know, mm-hmm. uh, got my doctorate and, and an art critic went on vacation in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And I filled in for him at the Globe and Mail newspaper in Toronto, and that was the beginning of my career. Well, Globe and Mail is a great start. It's a wonderful paper, right? And, and yeah, I was very lucky. To be writing for them. So what years would that have been at the Globe and Mail? When you, when you... 
I was only at the Globe and Mail for, I guess, four years. I actually started out as their uh, fine arts editor mm-hmm. in 96 and then uh, left in 2000 to become the, the chief art critic at the Washington Post. Wow. So that's really where I'm, I mean, I, I guess you could say I cut my teeth at the Globe and Mail, yeah. but I, um, but it was really at the Washington Post under the supreme editorship of um, John Pancake, who was the arts editor, who really helped me become a, a whatever, however good I am today, I owe it to John Pancake. I'm wondering when you're when you're working at a, at a at a paper like Globe and Mail, and then later the Washington Post. In those years, what are your what are you seeing that um, really struck you that has stayed today? That really you wrote about something or saw something that really captured your imagination in a way that had lasting power. And you say, well, boy, I'm writing about these same things today, or or you know, I'm writing, you know, what I wrote back in '97, '96 is still relevant. Or still, what comes to your mind when you? When you huh, that's a that's a difficult question because one of the things, the glories of being a fun art critic, is that you're seeing so much and writing about so much, so you do end up writing about the same things again and again. I mean, I've got a Picasso piece coming out in um, in the New York Times in the next few days, mm-hmm. and that, of course, is is I don't know the tenth Picasso piece I've written. I'm sure I wrote one in in Toronto, and then I certainly wrote right. more than one in in. Uh, Washington. So there is that kind of constant continuity just because of kind of the big names of art that keep coming back again and again. Um, and then there's all the contemporary art that you see. I mean, one of the, you know, as, as, a, as an all-purpose mass media art critic, you end up covering all kinds of art, which is one of the glories. And, and maybe we can talk about how it's also a big problem. But, you know, the, the contemporary art photography video Right. You know, I, I learned so much. I, you know, I came into my work as an art critic, loving contemporary art, knowing something about it. But you know, my PhD was in 16th century Italian art and art theory, so, so there was a big learning curve, and you know, it took me a long time. And it was really the artists out there, you know, that I was looking at that taught me what I needed to know. Would you say uh, typically people talk about the difference or even opposition between studying something that's classical or something that is in the, say, the 17th century, 16th century, Middle Ages, even further, further back. They often say someone that knows that field uh, might be a little bit alienated from something we call contemporary or modern. But I'm wondering if uh, the reverse is also true. I'm wondering what about your scholarship in those periods helped you or or gave you certain insight into contemporary art, possibly, or or if that um, prepared you in some way. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely refuse to make a distinction between contemporary art and older art forms. I mean, I think they, I think the act of understanding art and the act of interpreting art and the act of writing about art is the same regardless of the material. Mm-hmm. And that's for a very complicated philosophical reason that maybe we can get into later. Okay. Um, but I'll it's, um, yeah. I, I do, um, you know, I do use a lot of the same skills. Um, my PhD was actually mostly about the nature of representation, so how pictures can represent things like perspective, but not only perspective, what it means literally for a picture to represent the world, which is philosophically way more complicated than you'd ever imagine. I mean, hundreds of philosophers have addressed the question of what it means for a picture to represent, and there still isn't a really crisp answer for that question. So that, of course, gave me a lot of material for both 
you know, any picture that represents, right. but also in a sense for any picture that doesn't represent because the issues are still there. By virtue of not representing the world, oh, you are, you're still invoking right. issues of representation in a sense. So that particular background of mine has been extremely useful in understanding the nature of picturing, if you like. Um, and in my interest in philosophy also, has, has, I think, stood me in good stead. Lately, especially, I've been reading a lot of philosophy, um, philosoph- you know, philosophical aesthetics in the, in the sort of analytic tradition. And that's been extremely exciting for me. What have you been reading? Have you been reading uh, Danto or other, or um, what comes to your mind when you say you, you, you like uh, uh, Panofsky or, or more current or, more, or Dave Hickey or what? what uh, well, I've been reading, there's a philosopher at Berkeley called Alva Noe, N-O-E, mm-hmm. Um, who I'm very excited by. He's done uh, several books now on art. He's actually coming out with a new one. Um, and I think he's got some very, very interesting ideas about the way art functions, fine art. I like to use the word fine art. I think he just uses the word art. The way fine art functions differently than other kinds of pictures and other kinds of visual culture in, mm-hmm. in, in our society. Um, and I've been developing some ideas sort of in tandem with his and taking some of his ideas further as well. I like to see what you do with that because on our show we often discuss these um, these issues. I mean, often have written things on representation or a broader definition of representation than is typically used. You know, so that the non, as you said, the non-representational still, you know, in some sense representational. But um, I'm wondering uh, when you see the Maryland saying on the John. <laughs> yes. Marilyn, Marilyn wasn't sitting on the John. I was sitting on the John. Let's just be very clear about that. Yes. yes. You're, sitting, you're sitting on the John and looking at Marilyn Monroe, and now you wrote this incredible book. Talk a little bit about how you become known, how you become a, what's the word, connoisseur, and also in some sense, you know, someone that knows a lot about Warhol. Was this, was this over many decades or was this over, over um, I would imagine, some time, right? Well, I mean, you know, again, I'll, I'll come back to what it is to be a, a mass media art critic. Um, you end up writing about Warhol with some regularity just because Warhol's out there. You know, there are shows, there are exhibitions of Warhol. And one of the interesting things when I was at the Washington Post is there were several shows, I guess, of, of the late Warhol work, which is has often been slighted by art critics and art and art historians and still gets slighted. Yeah, it does. And seeing those shows really woke me up to the late Warhol, which, you know, most which was interesting and different from the material I knew before. But of course, I'd seen pop art shows. Mm-hmm. There was a great show at the National Gallery called Warhol Headlines about Warhol's interaction with the new. Um, so, you know, I, I was exposed to, to all sorts of um, Warholism, mm-hmm. and that was sort of that was the, the baseline for writing the book. But, of course, that doesn't get you anywhere near to where you need to be to be a biographer. And that just came mm-hmm. from – I mean, I, I would say that that actually came out of my first PhD in 10th century Italian there you go. Um, That's right. uh, history because, I, you know, I already was an archive rat because of that. Mm-hmm. And the great thing, if you read, you know, a really great – great historian like Peter Brown, who's just about my all-time favorite historian, who wrote about, you know, late Rome, late Roman um, Christianity especially, is that what they do is they take really, really, you know, uh, awkward, recalcitrant documents and make them sing and make them talk about the subject at hand. So, you know, you take a, a silly old saint's life and you realize, no, this tells us about how people were thinking about about society and about religion in, say, the, the fifth century. And that really, you know, learning to do that as a historian really helped me 
realized that the quite miscellaneous objects that survived in the archives in Pittsburgh, Warhol archives, could really sing if you looked at them right and talked about them right and looked at enough of them. So I really learned about Warhol the I guess to say the hard way, or maybe it was the easy way, the delightful way, by just digging into the Warhol archives in Pittsburgh under the guidance of, unfortunately, the now late Matt Werbeken, who's one of the great, great, great archivists. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, having him at my shoulder, we'd, we'd, we were supposed to close the archive up at six o'clock. You know, I was supposed to be chased out, but end up, Matt and I would end up talking till nine easily nine or 10 at night, um, just about the objects and about Warhol. And, you know, it was just an amazing immersion into Warhol. And with Warhol, because of those archives, you can be immersed into his life in a very magical, special way. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I'm thinking about all those album covers and New Yorker covers in the 50s and and then the factory and just the... I don't know the, the the well eclecticism is one word I, I guess someone could use but just a, a career and I'm thinking about the Last Supper and you studying the 10th century and the the the, the iconography and uh, just comes to my mind for some reason that that uh, that late Warhol and the text about the AIDS crisis and the, his, his Catholicism and uh, yeah let's let's um you know. It's, you've got to be very, very careful talking about world's Catholicism. I will never use the phrase because Catholicism for 99.9% of Americans means Roman Catholicism, right? It means the Catholicism of Italians and, yeah. and the Irish. And he was a member of a very, very, very different group, That's right. um, which was actually in – in real tension, uh, in conflict with the Irish and especially Irish Catholics in the 1920s or earlier in the United States. So it's really a mistake to think of him as a Catholic in any normal sense. You might as well, you know, I prefer to call him a Ruthenian or a Byzantine Catholic because the word Byzantine Catholic comes with Catholic as part of the word. Mm. People get confused about that. And there's a lot of very sloppy talk about Warhol as a religious figure or as a Catholic. It's yeah. I mean, if you want to, you could talk for, further about some of those differences if, 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 if you think it's appropriate. But I but I do think that um, studying the 10th century and these kind of documents, there is some connection there in terms of, I guess, how an artist interprets their own experience or their own beliefs or their, you know their uh, in a more general sense. Certainly, it's always I mean, yeah. Yeah. Although I think uh, you know. I, I'm not terribly interested in the notion of self-expression, uh, you know, as a as a model for what art is. I don't think it's coherent, yeah. as, as it were, philosophically. And I don't think, I mean, why the hell do we particularly want to see someone else's self-expression? I'm not that interested in other people's self. I want them to talk about the world. Yeah. Um, and Warhol does, does that, I think. Right. Warhol, you know, again, the notion of Warhol, because he's such a character, because he's so interesting as a human being, there's a tendency, and I guess I've completely contributed to it, to conflate the life and the and the art and the reasons for doing that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he's a really serious, sophisticated artist as, mu- as much as any other artist you could name. Right. You know, he knew his art history. He knew contemporary art backwards and forwards. Yeah. So he's in in conversation with the other art being made at every moment in, in his life. Um, and that's what I think he cared about. Sure. The sort of one take-home message that I got from studying his life is that he cared deeply, deeply, deeply about art. And more than anything else, he wanted to be the most exciting artist, you know, at any given moment in his, in his life and career. Well, in some sense, succeeded at that goal. That was... Um... I, I believe so. I mean, he made, let's not be, let's, you know, let's, let's be direct. 
like every artist ever, he made some bad work. And especially in the 80s and 70s, he made a lot of bad work. Mm -hmm. But at every moment that he's making bad work, he's also making superb work. There's hardly, you know, a two or three year period that goes by where there isn't something really important being turned out. And of course, in the 60s, there's something important and interesting being turned out every month. Um, uh, but the, the range is, is astounding, as you, as you said. Yeah, and it's astounding his not, his not, of course, his knowledge of art history and knowingness about all that, but also those many years in the commercial world, which, again, a lot of known modern artists worked in the commercial field, but they didn't do it as well as they weren't as good at that as Warhol was at that, right? So Warhol's record record album covers are some of the best record album covers, and his New Yorker covers are 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 superb. And have, you know, they just well, not New Yorker. He didn't, do, he didn't he did he didn't do New Yorker covers, but he did covers for all sorts of other fabulous publications, publications like the New Yorker. Um, you know, although it's it's important to recognize that. His commercial work, I think, is is in a completely different register than his later fine art, or for that matter, than his fine art in the 1950s. Right. So I think he was a superb commercial artist yeah. and a superb – I shouldn't say superb – a very good commercial artist and a superb fine artist, but not the two things at the same time, if you like. They're separate. I think they're very separate hats. It's high, it's highly unusual, I think, that somebody is so good at both. I mean, it seems to me. I mean, that 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 yeah. that, that seems unique. Well, although it's you know it's important to recognize that he wasn't at the time in the fifties considered a genius of commercial art. His work was very much like other artists had already done things. So, for instance, he's deeply indebted to um, to Ben Shaw, mm -hmm. um, and so he's really part of a school of artists doing similar work. I once played a mean trick on Matt Warbeckin, the great Warhol archivist, by showing him three Warhols mm -hmm. and asking him what he thought of them, and he you know he told me about them, and he said you know, this about this one and this, that about that one. And then I said, actually, Matt, none of those are by Andy Warhol. They're all by other illustrators working at exactly the same moment. So in fact, there was, there was a school of illustration working in the, in the kind of, uh, I wonder how one should describe it, a kind of artisanal mode and outsider mode. The important thing about Warhol's commercial illustration is that he was willing to embrace a uh, kind of face style and a feminine style. Mm -hmm. That was sort of an element in the in this movement, but he went much further with it. So he was willing to, in a sense, very subtly out himself as a gay man in his work. And I think that helped the work sell because it was selling to to sophisticated women. Right. And there was something about the effeminate in the work that matched the product he was selling. Everybody needs an anchor in life. You, me, just everybody. Anchor made this whole show possible. I'm immensely grateful to them. You too can use Anchor to make your own shows and create your own vision. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Well, do you think that that so-called so effeminate dimension or some of those, those qualities is, is one of the, for lack of a better term, innovative things in Warhol or one of the things that, that is... Uh, made him stand out in that, in that sense, you would say. Yeah, I mean, I think Warhol's homosexuality, his play with homosexuality, yeah. with camp especially, mm -hmm. it's really completely vital to understanding, you know, what he did. Um, uh, almost all his art has, you can, there's, a, there's some kind of a queer reading of it. Mm -hmm. It's not the only reading of most of the art, though some of the art, maybe 
it's almost the only reading. Right. I mean, think of think about his movie called Blowjob. Oh yeah, everyone everyone reads that as uh, you know classic queer Warhol. But of course, you never you never get to see who's doing the the feeling. So it could just as well be a woman, um, it as it were, blowing a man. Then, but we all assume that it's that it's gay. So all, there's almost always more than one reading. I'm a little weird because I I talked about that movie on my my video stream and I compared it to Dry, Carl Dreyer. So. I think oh, I, interesting. Well, I do. I think there's that artistic dimension to Warhol. The things that kind of that you see in Dreyer and Brisson. Yeah, very interesting. Well, I said very interesting. I should out myself right now as a uh, filmic almost ignoramus. Um, it's just not. I've just been a busy person, and there are always film critics doing film reviews. So yeah, I, I don't know as much about film as I'd like to. I know a little bit about the film that was right around Warhol. You know, Jonas Mikas and those yeah. people, but. I have to admit that though I love, especially art film over the decades, my wife is who's an artist knows infinitely more about it than I do. Interesting. Well, I'm kind of I'm kind of wondering if you don't mind talking about some of your philosophies regarding issues of representation and expression or non-expression or not the intentional fallacy or anything else because you said you had a lot of ideas about that and this this podcast is the, is is the perfect place to, to get into the weeds on those things and I'm wondering. If we want to start from where you started thinking philosophically about these things and how, how they've developed over time, not just Warhol, but the way you approach uh, works of art in general when you write about them and when you, how it's informed by your, your, your understandings of it. Yeah, sure. We can we can try to do that. Those the weeds we get into may be so high that they'll get completely lost. But let me let me try if I possibly can. Um, I think the issue comes. You know, I I came of age as an art historian in the 1990s mm-hmm. when there was a lot of emphasis on replacing the notion of art or fine art with the notion of visual culture. That is saying. You know, there's a there's a hierarchy involved in deciding that some objects are the stuff called fine art and some objects are somehow lesser, you know, decorative arts, etc. So let's get rid of all of those distinctions and look at, I don't know, a hubcap with exactly the same eyes that we use for the Mona Lisa. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's just call it all visual culture. And a lot of visual culture is about using objects for magical purposes. I mean, there's all sorts of uses of objects that art history has has been ignoring. And that's been very important um, uh, development in art history. But I think that it left out the fact that there still is a category of fine art. And we'll get back to it in one second. Um, There's a cat, because the category is a hard, problematic word. Um, There is something called fine art, and there's a way of looking at uh, objects at, at certain parts of visual culture that's different than the way we look at other parts of visual culture. And it often has to do with with the kind of objects we're looking at. So if you're looking at a Robert Rauschenberg, mm-hmm. pretty obvious that, that that demands a fine art approach. Now, you can also look at it financially. There's you know all sorts of aspects of it that have nothing to do with it being fine art. But one of the things you're likely to do is use the tools of criticism that have, and of discourse that have been developed over the last you know, 500 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, and I think, and this is where, uh, to a certain extent, I'm following Alva Noe's notions, um, that there's a particular way that involves a particular way of thinking and talking as much as it involves a particular kind of object. So Alva Noe distinguishes between pictures, which we use, you know, every single day, where if we want to you know, buy something from the supermarket. Maybe we look at a brochure. If we want to, you know, buy a 
depends on Amazon. We look at the pictures there. Those, there's, you know, we use pictures for all sorts of things. Yes. But some pictures uh, we use um, to think about pictures, to think about what pictures are, what the world is like there. I like to use the phrase machines for thinking. That's my phrase, not Albanoe's. So he distinguishes between normal tools, uh, art being used as a tool for doing things like buying um, uh, pens on Amazon or, for that matter, celebrating a king or praying to God, right? Those are normal pictures being used as tools and what he calls um, strange tools. His, his book about this subject is actually called Strange Tools. Mm-hmm. And the strange tools are what I would call fine art. That is, they're, they're much more philosophical. They're used philosophically. And I guess, and I think that, that Alva would agree with me about this, it's not actually so much about there being two sets of objects. So it's not that there are objects that deserve one kind of attention, mm-hmm. an object that deserve a different kind of attention. It's that there are different, different um, functions that objects can serve. And one function that any object can serve is that it can function as fine art. It can get you thinking. So you take the same object, uh, you know, take a Campbell's soup can mm-hmm. uh, in the kitchen, and it has a very clear <laughs> set of functions as a tool, and put it in a museum, in Warhol's case, by painting it onto a canvas, mm-hmm. and it becomes a strange tool. It becomes a work of art. That's right. And I argue that there are that it's, and that, that those strange tools, I think, have only existed since about 1500 in the West. Mm-hmm. But that's when the Renaissance essentially invents the category of fine art. That's right. You know, and it's a different category from other categories of visual objects. And so that's very important for me to understand the power and particularity and, frankly, oddness of fine art. It's a weird, peculiar phenomenon. Not all cultures are going to indulge in it. Not all human beings in the West are going to be interested in it, and they shouldn't be. It's it's as esoteric as you know, cricket or name, name something esoteric, mm-hmm. stamp collecting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it has fabulous possibilities for someone who gets involved with it, mm-hmm. but it is, it is peculiar and specialized set of, set of tasks that are involved in, in, in using your fine art brain as it were to look at things. So that's my, that's the, the and that, that's very important for me, obviously, in looking at Warhol, because the mistake about Warhol is thinking that he's really part of part of popular culture. That is, that his pictures are, in some sense, tools. And I'm going to say, no, no, they're strange tools. He's a fine artist thinking in fine art terms. And we have to think about all the objects he makes, including goofy ones from the 1980s, like his appearance on, on the, the Love Boat. We have to think about them in terms of fine art. There you go. There's the weeds for you. Well, that's that. Those those weeds aren't too tall. That's fine, um, but I don't. Um, I don't. I don't disagree with that. With that um, um, approach, I'm, I'm interested though about 1500 to 2022, and if you think what the developments that you think have been happening um, over such a gr- great span of time, and uh, artists like artists like Warhol doing something, is your would you say that your concept is connected? To defamiliarization, which is an older kind of art term, or is it a little? Is it? Any- I mean, that's that's central to to fine art. Yeah. And actually, there's a much closer connection between Warhol and the world of 1500 than even even than anything else than that. Um, because I think that Warhol's, you know, the crucial notion for understanding Warhol is appropriation. It's taking something from one sphere of human culture and transferring it into the sphere of fine art. So the Brillo box, of course, is the most famous example, but the Campbell soups 
work that way too. And there are lots of other examples in Warhol. And my argument is that that's actually how fine art gets invented in 1500, that people take uh, works of art that originally would have been meant for sacred purposes, altarpieces essentially, mm-hmm. and decide that there's another way those can be used, that they can be treated as fine art. And we even have texts from that period where people say, you know, there's a real problem in using altarpieces as fine art, that there's a problem in thinking about altarpieces in terms of how beautiful they are. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not what they're for. They're meant to talk to God. They're not meant to talk to us aesthetically. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment in the early 16th century where people say, um, you know what, we should actually take these objects out of churches where they're meant for sacred use and put them in secular settings, basically in museums, and take them out of their functional context and use them as this non-functional thing we call art. So that appropriation, taking something from one context and putting it into the new context of fine art, begins is at the root of the very concept of fine art. And that's one reason I'm so interested in Warhol, because he's the greatest appropriation artist of all time. So that notion of appropriation, I think, is vital to the history of fine art in the West. And it revives fine art a bunch of times when fine art's still getting boring. You know, Manet uses photography just to supercharge his his art. That's right. Well, I think, think, yeah, certainly that's that's important. I'm just wondering, um, of more recent developments, you said you started working a lot in the 90s. And I'm wondering how you see that period from the 90s to now, if there's anything that noteworthy that you think you should mention about what's happened in fine art or... Or how fine art communicates with the world outside. I mean, I think I think the the maturing of video art. Now, of course, Andy Warhol did the very very first video. work of video art ever, um, outer and inner space. You know, it's amazing. One of the great works of all time by anyone is this the film and video piece he did of uh, Edie Sedgwick. Really a fabulous thing. Um, but the maturing of video art for me is the most important thing that's happened in my career. Mm-hmm. Um, people like Douglas Gordon, Stan Douglas, mm-hmm. uh, an embrace, among other things, of real narrativity, of narrative storytelling in something that still has the sophistication of fine art. That for me is the most important uh, thing that has happened. And the current Whitney Biennial uh, in New York has a lot of video and a lot of fairly narrative video. And I think that's extremely important. It's certainly the most exciting thing that's happened since I, I came into the world of fine art and of contemporary art. And it's still ongoing. I mean, it's funny. There's still a resistance to video art that, for me, proves that there's something interesting going on there. What is that resistance? Is it just people other than ordinary Philistinism, or is it something else? Or are they, again, you know, what is, what is people like that? Not, not well, that. video art requires time. I mean, it may be as simple as that, right? Yeah. Take some time to look at video. I mean, I love that aspect of it. I just yeah. love being able to sit down and look. But for a lot of people, I mean, if you look, and this has been done a million times, you got to stopwatch out and you look at how long people look at the paintings, mm-hmm. even, you know, the most famous paintings in the world. It's very, very, very limited time. And video really doesn't quite allow you to do that. But mm. at the same time, it doesn't allow you to do that. It invites you to just sit back and enjoy, mm. you know, the way the TV does. Video art for me is like watching t- good TV, and I'm happy just to be, frankly, to be a little bit passive and look at the stuff. That's right. That's right. So for me, it's more relaxing than having to figure out what a painting is about. That's really hard work. And you're on your feet, you know, it's, that's exhausting. Mm. Spending an hour looking at a painting is far more exhausting than spending an hour looking at a video. That's right. Video carries you along if it's any good. It's got some hint of narrative to it, usually. Mm-hmm. It's got something to say. It's, it's you know, 
Um, I can't speak highly enough of, of good video art. Now, there's bad video art, but there's bad everything art, too. Sure. What, what, what is that, the Whitney Biennial, that was just there that you want to speak about, particular works or people that really excited you, you were really uh, – one of them. Good, good question. Um, uh, uh, I'm always bad at names when they when they yeah. I have to suddenly come up with them. Hang on one second. Well, the Philadelphia artist Alex DaCosta, okay. if I'm getting the name exactly right, is extremely interesting. I've written about him a few times, so I should be able to get his name absolutely right. Mm-hmm. He did a very strange piece where he essentially dresses up as Duchamp, has Duchamp, among other things, has Duchamp fondling works by Van mm-hmm. by Brancusi in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. It's very funny. It's a video projection. Uh, very, very funny work. I'm trying to think of what else really grabbed my fancy. There were a bunch of videos as well. But of course, when I'm on the spot, I can't think of one this minute. If we keep talking about other things, I'm sure one will come to mind. And you just uh, suddenly went dead. Technical difficulties, of course. Uh, um, no problem. It's, so what were your impressions of The Clock? You remember this this film uh, by Christopher uh, Faison, his last name. Yeah, I can't believe that I am too. I know Christian. It's not Christopher. It's Christian. Um, uh, oh my God, I can't believe I don't remember his name. All of a sudden, it'll come to me in a minute. I love that piece. I think it's one of the most charming pieces. I should describe it a little bit for your listeners. Yeah. Um, Christian Markley. Christian Markley, of course. Um, it's uh, all he did was, and it's a little hard to describe, is he took uh, thousands and thousands of snippets from movies that show someone looking at a clock or that show a clock or show a wristwatch and essentially clip them out like little tiny samples, a few seconds, maybe 10, 15 seconds at most, clip them all out and then put them in the chronological order of a passing day. So the glimpse of a clock that's at midnight comes first and then the glimpse of a clock that's at midnight and one second or one minute comes next. And it's basically a 24-hour clock mm-hmm. of, of clocks in film. And it's absolutely hilarious because it does things like, for instance, if you show up – and he shows it, of course, over the course of 24 hours ideally. And you can show up at 1 a.m. and see all the clocks that are showing 1 a.m., which means that there's a lot of images of people sleeping. Um, you know, then at various times, people, of course, are having breakfast at 8 a.m. So there's all the clocks that show – uh, 8 a.m., people are often having breakfast or just waking up from a love affair or something like that. It's utterly, utterly charming. I mean, one of the most, as much fun as you could ever have uh, looking at art. Yeah, I'm glad that, glad that you was, feel that way about it because I was, I was blown away um, by that. And um, I recommend the clock. <laughs> Me too. I mean, there's, I guess there's a slight issue over the years. I've, I still enjoy every time I see it. I just love it. The question is, is it a tiny bit facile? Does it really deliver the full complexity of, you know, really, really difficult, important, challenging art, uh, profound art? Um, I think it does probably, but the pill certainly goes down very, very easily, thanks to Christian Markley. Um, uh, and maybe it's e- easy for people just to wallow in the pleasure of it. Now, yeah. there ain't nothing wrong with wallowing in pleasure when it comes to art. So, I, nope. you know, I'm, I'm willing to live with that. Uh, you can wallow in Tintoretto, too. Mm-hmm. What, 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 uh, what about uh, Queen Master? Matthew Barney, what are your... Uh... Uh, I'm not a fan of Matthew Barney, and I can say that. Yeah, uh, live because I've written just that. Yeah. I think it's 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 too much like surrealism for me to be interested in it. I'm not interested in Super. in occult uh, 
uh, esoteric, you know, surrealism, which is really what it is. It's really just surrealism brought into into film. I mean, you know, they're beautifully made films, but of course, you know, he's got a wonderful team of people who are talented. So I think that you know yeah. that's not surprisingly beautiful. I'm just not I'm just not interested in them. But other people are, and that's you know, I certainly respect that. When you're on di- dais or panels, and you, if you had the, the curse or the blessing or opportunity to be presented with people, community, individuals who don't really, really fully know much about Warhol, and you were you were <laughs> you were given the task to you know introduce if that's even introduce them to this this monumental figure Warhol, what would you? Where do you typically begin, or where do you? Where do you if, if, a, you know, uh, it's it's kind of obvious you begin with the Campbell Soups. It's such a cliche, but they are really, in that one moment, they reveal, you know, much of what Warhol got up to later. Not in the films, of course, or only in a roundabout way in the films. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you know, whenever I'm talking to people who, who don't know much about art, I think the very best thing to do is to take one work of art right. and just and start unpacking it and talking about it and Hopefully I can, because I I get incredibly excited when I'm unpacking a work of art, trying to make it sing. And that really important thing is for people to realize that that's the pleasure in it, that that it's really exciting to figure out what a, a work of art is. That works of art are all unbelievably difficult and unbelievably stupid in a way. They're just these objects that sit there. Yeah. And it's your job to figure out why the hell you should be looking at them and when you do that, it gets really exciting. So that's that's what I do whenever I'm with someone who doesn't already have those those fine art tools. It's just just demonstrate what it is to mm-hmm. to unpack a work. You know, um, I guess in my ideal unpacking, I do one, I do the Campbell soups and maybe the screen tests or maybe even Empire. You know, the twenty the eight hour footage of the Empire State Building. Um, but uh, you know, that would certainly be my way of going about it. That's a, that's a good and, and of course in your in your bi- biography, um, did you want to talk a little bit about Valley Silverness of shooting and and the uh, and the effect that had on his on on his, on his work or scope? Happened in there. It's a big topic, of course, but you, um, I do sense something there in, the, in, the, in terms of an event in his life. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, uh, in fact, we can we can end the podcast on that. It's a great, great way to, to end because that's how I begin my book, which is yeah. with this horrible, bloody moment where he um, where, you know, he's he's just been shot by Valerie Solanas only once, even just quite recently in a major newspaper. I saw them referring to him being shot more than once. He was shot once in the side on June 3rd, 1968 really was so close to death, he might as well have been dead. And this amazing surgeon called Giuseppe Rossi, mm-hmm. um, who I got to interview oh, wow. uh, long, long before his death about, the, about the, the surgery and the shooting. It was, it was pure luck that Rossi was there on that day, this incredibly talented surgeon who knew both all about advanced thoracic surgery and about gunshot wounds. Um, he, was just, he just happened to be in the hospital on that day, and he was the person who saved who saved Warhol's life. Um, but the Valley Solanus thing, I have to go out of my way in my book to destroy what I think is a fallacy, and I've been completely unsuccessful uh. because it's a classic myth, I think myth, that Warhol's, that everything changed when he was shot, that, you know, you have the wild life of <laughs> yeah. the silver factory, and then boom, he's shot and he gets scared, and he um, and he decides to nope. change his life nope. and his clothing, et cetera. No, I don't mean- 
But if you look at the chronology, he was already doing that before he was shot. That's right. Come, you know, January of 68, uh, six months, exactly six months before he was shot, he's already cleaning up the factory. He's moved out of the famous scruffy silver factory into a very nice, tidy space that could pass as an architect's office. That's right. Um, the the, 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 the um, uh, acolytes are starting to the, – the druggies are starting to move out and he's got, got new people. Um, like Fred Hughes moving in, he really is very well on his way to being a nineteen, you know, the nineteen seventies Warhol before he shot. So I think it's a mistake to think that the change is that great. You know, he realized he'd exhausted the possibilities of that particular persona and a pop art as well. Mm-hmm. And he's moving again before he shot. He's moving on to some quite cryptic, difficult conceptual art, which is mm-hmm. where the whole art world was moving. Okay. Um, you know, so I, I think it's a mistake to imagine. I mean, obviously, you get shot and almost die. It's going to change anyone's life. Sure. But I don't think it really had a, that profound an effect on him as a creative figure in the culture. I think he was on his way already. I actually really like 70s Warhol um, more than many, many do. I think it's an interesting period. Well, at that, maybe we can end on the note that it's it's one of the frustrations for anyone who studies Warhol is that the academic world of Warhol scholars are extremely interested in 70s and 80s Warhol, you know, the piss paintings, mm-hmm. the camouflage paintings, the Rorschach paintings. But for whatever reason, popular, the, you know, the popular ad, uh, admiration for Warhol is still based in the pop works. And that's true even among popular non-specialist art critics. So it's been a frustration of mine um, that even, you know, with my biography, which is absolutely geared towards a popular audience, you know, I haven't been able to, to move the discussion as far forward as I like. But I think that may be changing with this new, you know, the Netflix documentary on the diaries. That's all set in the 70s and 80s. I think that it's not really about the art, but I think there is a growing interest in later Warhol, even among the general public. And I hope that that continues and, and you know, that, that, that maybe we can change what it is that matters. If we can make Warhol the filmmaker and Warhol the artists of the 70s and 80s matter mm-hmm. to the general public as much as Marilyn and the soup cans do, then we'll have, we'll have done God's work, I think. Yes. Well, I, I really thank you for your generosity and time and coming on our podcast because you, uh, you speak uh, very um, – eloquently but also relate, relatable way that audience can can uh, be inspired and, and go out and get this Warhol book. It's a worth reading every page, I must say. And uh, so thank you. Well, thank, thank you for reading every page, Mitch. It's a long read, I know. I really appreciate anyone who goes through the whole thing. It's, I should make a special club of people who've read all of my books. Like, <laughs> like there should be a club of people who've watched all of Empire and who've read all of Zay Coppin's biography of Andy Warhol. That's right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Mitch. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. I don't like goodbyes, so I'll see you soon, folks. Thank you.